I want you to turn to two passages, Philippians chapter 4, and then also in just a moment, Matthew chapter 18. Philippians chapter 4 is that, if you will, launch pad that we use to get started on this series. It's that portion in which the Apostle The one who bore some resemblance to Yoda. I really think that's going to stick. Some of us will probably not be able to think of Yoda without thinking of Paul again. Maybe vice versa. The Apostle Paul is breaking into this epistle to the Philippians to give an exhortation to apparently to women very much unreconciled, and that fact is known to many. So let me read verses 2 and 3 from Philippians 4. I entreat Iodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, this exhortation to his true companion in verse 3 is particularly my interest this morning. Help these women. Help them to agree in the Lord. Then turn to uh, Matthew chapter 18. And I will read just, again, a couple of verses, verse 15 and 16. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And it's particularly, verse 16, take one or two others along with you. That interests me, will be our focus this morning. Thus far in our studies of how to come together again with a brother that's been alienated by, uh, by us or from us, we have been speaking of it entirely in, you might say, two dimensions. The offenses between two people and thus far, our consideration has been limited to what those two people should do. Now, as you well know, oftentimes conflicts do not stay confined to the two people involved, the one who offended and the one who was offended. They become 3D, if you will, uh, rather quickly. Others become involved. And whether it's because of things outside of our control or because of decisions we make to involve them, rightly or wrongly, it is very typical that conflicts between one brother or sister and another begin to involve other people. Now, when that happens, by and large, it's a deplorable state of affairs. It is not good. Ordinarily, in our experience, when that happens, we see that when more than one person or more than two people are involved in the conflict, they bring their own sins. And sin very often 
multiplies the more people are involved. And many times, as we'll see in a moment, our impulse to involve other people are, are not good impulses. They're not motivated for the right reasons. And so, as a rule, the involvement of other people is strenuously to be avoided. That is what Jesus seems to insist on as he begins. If your brother sins against you, I'm sorry, in Matthew 18, if your brother sins against you, go tell his fault between you and him alone. And it's that concern that I've just expressed that is motivating our Lord's words to go alone and seek to retain some privacy and resolve this just between the two of you. But, you ask, is there ever a time when a third party or third parties are rightly in a healthy way to be involved? And of course, the answer is yes. Our text in Matthew 18 provides for that. As you continue to read, it becomes obvious that Jesus does have in mind a certain kind of involvement by other people to be very helpful. And in Philippians chapter 4, we saw that also taking place. The conflict is between Iodia and Syntyche. The Apostle Paul says to his brother, you need to get involved in that. And you need to seek to bring reconciliation between those two people. And so... Contrary to what commonly takes place among us, it is the fact, however rare it is, that when that third dimension is added, instead of compounding the problem, it can be a means that God uses by His Spirit to actually bring resolution. It can be a glorious means by which two people can be reconciled by the role of third parties. That's what I want to consider this morning. That um, expansion of a conflict beyond the two people involved, to those third parties. And it leaves us three questions we need to grapple with this morning. First, when is it wrong to involve others in a conflict between you and a brother? When is it right to involve others in a conflict between you and a brother? And then how do we go about doing that, involving others in a conflict? Let's ask, first of all, when is it wrong to involve others in a conflict between you and the brother? And of course, I mean brother or sister when I use the term. There's two rules. They'll be written somewhere in your hearts in very bold print, if you will. Two rules that show us when it is wrong to involve other people in a conflict. The first is this. When it's a personal offense and you have not privately confronted your brother. When it's a personal offense and you have not privately confronted your brother, then it's wrong to involve others. Now, that's the rule. That's the first rule. I want to major on that now. I'm going to, in a moment, mention some exceptions to the rule. There are some. We'll need to be clear about them. But this is the rule. And this is far and away the rule that applies in most circumstances. Now, in Matthew 18, Jesus obviously has in mind a personal offense. If your brother sins against you, it might have been intentional, it might have been unintentional, it might have been public, it might have been private, but the point is, he has hurt you. It's not been some sin that was not directed at you, but, but it's truly a sin. It's a sin that affected you, impacted you, and you're the one who was wounded by it. Jesus is very clear what we're to do 
and what we're not to do in that circumstance. You may not, according to our Lord, speak about the matter to just anyone you like. You've been offended. Jesus makes very clear you have a responsibility to limit your communication about that fence to the person who offended you. He says, go and tell him, him, his fault between you and him alone. Now, when Jesus speaks that way, he's not just trying to say, you need to make sure that you have a good private booth when you talk to him so other people aren't overhearing. That, of course, would be implied, but that is not the, the sole concern he has. The more significant point is your conversation about this offense is to be with him only. He's hurt you. Your instinct, it ought to become instinctive, is to go only to him to speak about it. Now, that is not what we do, is it? That's not what we do. We are guilty of speaking far more broadly and indiscriminately about the offenses that we suffer at the hands of others. Why is that the case? Well, it's instinctive for us in our nature, in our carnal self, when we're hurt, to go to someone for comfort, right? That's what is the basic instinct of a natural heart. I'm hurt, I want to go to somebody for comfort. And going to somebody, usually somebody who loves you, somebody who's particularly fond of you and would pretend to see things from your perspective, usually going to that person serves a couple of ends. You can speak to them about how you were hurt by someone else. They'll give you sympathy, and that, that is a comforting thing. They'll also know about it. And in a very subtle way, that's a little tiny piece of revenge, isn't it? If we can convey to someone else the sin of the one who, who offended us, then in a very small way, in some sense, we can feel like we've been able to retaliate. Now somebody else knows just what kind of person so-and-so is or what he or she is capable of. Brothers and sisters, that's the most gratifying thing to do when you're hurt, is to tell someone about it. Jesus says you may not do that. Jesus says you have to go first to the one who offended you. Now, the biblical word for not doing that, the biblical word for going to someone else other than the one who offended you and speaking of that to that person is called giving an evil report. It's called gossip. And the biblical word for what happens when you do that, you speak to someone else about it, and inevitably your own biases and your own perspective come out in what you say, and you exaggerate or tell things only for one perspective. The biblical word for that is slander. And as soon as I label that common thing among us, with those words, if you know your Bibles, you know how serious that is, don't you? You know what the Scripture says about gossip and slander. It, it lines those words up with, with sins we would say are way over the top of, of those in terms of, of heinousness before the Lord. God says in the Psalms, he will, he will destroy the slanderer. The one who speaks about another person and speaks about their wrongdoing in a way that does not convey the truth. Well, Jesus tells us 
your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. So involving a third party before you've confronted your brother privately is wrong. That is when it is wrong to involve someone else. And let me say, brothers and sisters, this is our temptation most often with those who are closest to us. It just stands to reason with your husband or wife, with your parents or your children, with your girlfriend, your buddy, the one you talk to a lot, the one you share a lot of things about. You, you have a very good and healthy relationship with them. You share a lot about your life, the things you're dealing with, the things you're struggling with. And why wouldn't you, str- why wouldn't you share that particular struggle? It seems natural, doesn't it? The one that you're confiding so much in, why wouldn't you share the fact that you've been grieved by someone else's hurt? Well, I've just told you why. Scripture says you're not to talk about it with him or her. You're to talk about it with the one that has offended you. That is your priority. Now I realize that there are many times when the offense that you receive inevitably is known, for example, to your spouse. I realize that inevitably... There are times when that will be known, and in those times, you both, having known of that, and perhaps giving the counsel that that the one flesh relationship is right to give, you still need to be careful how you speak with that person who knows about it before you've gone to the person that has offended you. Parents and children, you need to be very careful about that. Parents, you need to be careful about what you and your spouse are speaking about when your children can hear you. Are you speaking about an offense and how you'll deal with it, how you'll respond to it? Have you confronted that person yet? Are you actually going to use your children as conciliators to anticipate a future point? No, I doubt it. Be careful how you speak in front of your children about the offenses you've received from others. They are not in a position to need to know or to have a right to know. Brothers and sisters, it's not just that it is, it is breaking the rule to do that. It is that. It's disobedient. It's not just breaking the rule. You see, don't you, how the rule is put there for, for, by a wise God to protect us? You're offended by person A, but you tell person C about it. And person B, you and person C know about it. And perhaps that person speaks about it to someone else. Well, when you do eventually do what you're supposed to do and confront person A, are persons C, D, E, F going to be there? Are they going to see his repentance? Are they going to see the reconciliation? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. They'll not have part in the reconciliation. And yet they'll carry around that knowledge that colors their view of a brother or sister. It's not just breaking a rule and disobedient thereby. It's dangerous, brothers and sisters. And there's a great deal of that, isn't there? Especially when we recognize the fact that sometimes those who love us are more offended than even we are by those who wrong us. Did you call that? You husbands... You can be even more offended than your wife is by someone who speaks insultingly of her, and vice versa. Somebody insults your child, you, you moms, you dads, you can be even more offended than the child is. And it, it, it can be multiplied. Close friends 
can carry up, they can take up another person's offense and carry them. And they had no business ever taking it up. They had no business knowing of it. It's your responsibility to shield them from that temptation to sin. So when is it wrong to involve others in a conflict between you and a brother? When it is a personal offense and you've not privately confronted your brother. And what that means, before I move on, is that you and I need to have deeply embedded instincts, new instincts, new creation instincts. You're wrong, all of a sudden you realize this thing needs to be partitioned off from the things I would normally share and talk about with other people. I've been wronged. That needs to be put in the confidential envelope in your filing, your, your ongoing mental file. That needs to be confidential between you and the one who wronged you. Out of love, you should be loath to allow others to know of it until you've had an opportunity to address it. And that also means, in casual conversation, someone begins to share with you about an offense that they have suffered at the hands of another, your instincts start to quickly say, have you spoken to so-and-so about it? Well, no, I was just trying to get your advice. No, 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 no. I'm not willing to give you advice. You know what you need to do. You need to go confront that person. You need to speak to that person. I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. That person says to you, well, I have confronted them. Then you ask them, are you telling me because you're asking me to become involved in reconciling you. If the answer to that is no, you say, I have no business knowing what you're trying to tell me. Brothers and sisters, these disciplines, these instinctive responses, we need to cultivate in order not to wrongly become involved in others' conflicts or to involve others in our conflicts. The second rule about when it is wrong to involve others is when the offense is between you and a brother and the third party is not a brother. You and another Christian have a conflict. Second rule to remember, it is not appropriate for you to involve a third person if that person is not a brother. That's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and I'll invite you to turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we've already been told this morning, quite accurately that the Corinthian church was, what was the word, a rowdy bunch? There's a lot of varied problems in this congregation. One of the problems we find in 1 Corinthians 6 is that there are such intense disagreements between brothers that they're actually taking them each other to court. Verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare to go to law before the unrighteous? Instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? The brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. 
I will not take the time to open that all together up. So suffice to say for now, the situation is one in which one member is so entrenched in a dispute with another member of the Corinthian church, they're going to a judge to settle it. Uh, perhaps some business dealing or some boundary dispute or what have you. The Apostle Paul is beside himself. And the principle that he is going to articulate is not, it's not, look, non-Christians are not competent to be mediators. That's not his point. There are a lot of non-Christians that are actually very competent. They've got a lot of common grace insight. That, that's not Paul's point. The principle is this. The church of Jesus Christ is to be known by the world as those who love one another. Those who are uncommonly united. That's how they're to be known. That's part of the winsomeness of the covenant community. That's what is to draw people to it. And so when you have these scandalous circumstances in which brothers are so divided that they, they're tempted to go to court, then Paul says, no, for the sake of Christ, his honor, and the honor of the church, don't even think about it. He says, I don't care what the issue is. You need to not be wronged. Then they go parade the dirty laundry of the church before the world. That's his point. Now, you and I can all make mental notes. Can't sue another Christian. Maybe you've already made that mental note. And most of you will never bump into it in your everyday practice. Most of you, thankfully, will not ever be tempted even to go to court with another Christian. It goes even further than that. We should all also make it a rule of conduct, brothers and sisters, and scrupulously follow this rule. I will not speak of conflicts I have with other Christians to those who don't know Christ. I'll not do it. Do they exist? Sure they do. Would I admit they exist to a non-Christian? Yes, they, of course I would. Of course I would. Will I take those unpleasant, still imperfected features of the church and put them under the noses of a non-Christian, my co-worker, the one that I talk a lot about, or talk to about a lot of things? No, I'll not. I'll take note, not just I can't sue my brother, but I can't talk about him disparagingly to someone on the outside. What a dishonor that is to the Lord Jesus, and I'll not do it. So those, brothers and sisters, are two rules the Scripture lays out clearly for us about when it is wrong to involve others in a dispute, a relationship that is unreconciled between you and a brother. When is it right? Second question. It is right in several cases. The first four of them, briefly, are going to be exceptions to one of the rules I've already laid down. You need to have a rule in mind. The rule that I have in mind here is don't involve anyone else unless you've drawn that person first. That's the rule. Here are some exceptions to the rule. When concerns for propriety demand it, you may go to another person. Concerns for propriety. Matthew 18 is providing us a foundational text in resolving conflict, but it's not exhaustive. There are other biblical principles to be considered. One of them is the biblical principle that we're to be above reproach in every interaction we have with a brother or sister. 
And sometimes to go alone would not be to remain above approach. For example, a man displays what a woman considers to be inappropriate behavior or language, and it happens in the church. Should she go to him alone, no one else around? Highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. Other principles of propriety would indicate she would go with her husband or go with an elder or deacon who can protect the honor of both of those people as they resolve that conflict. Another exception to that rule is when there are legitimate authority structures involved. Sometimes the offense you receive from another person reflects more on the one in authority over them than it does on that person. You are spoken to in a rather disrespectful way by one of the children in the church. And that's a pattern. That's a habit. Well, might you speak to that young person? Of course you might. But you might also realize this is a reflection more on his parent, his father and mother. And so I need to speak to him. I need to confront him, actually, because he's indirectly been responsible for my offense. This would apply in cases of immodesty, for example. Of those who, young ladies who are still under their fathers, in particular headship, it's often right to go to the one in authority over the person who, in your judgment, is dressing or acting immodestly. Or suppose a man is teaching Sunday school and says something in the class that doesn't seem quite correct. Well, it would be very appropriate to go to him directly and say, I'm not sure that that is exactly biblical. But if the whole topic of the class, the whole direction of the class is decidedly unedifying, then that reflects more on the elders, doesn't it? And it's right to go to the one in authority. So when there are legitimate authority structures involved, sometimes it is right to involve others in the conflict. When the offense, a third exception, is public, it is altogether public. First Timothy 5 makes that clear. When the offense is public, it can be rebuked publicly. Paul there says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. Calvin makes a down-to-earth observation. He says that needs to be compared with Matthew 18. And he says, Matthew 18, Jesus is setting out a format for confronting someone who's offended you privately. But in a public case, 1 Timothy 5 calls for a public rebuke, and he makes this observation, certainly it would be absurd that he who's committed a public offense so that the disgrace of it is generally known should be admonished by individuals. For if a thousand persons are aware of it, he ought to receive a thousand admonitions. Paul is saying that there are spokesmen for the church that can rebuke public offenses, and, and that is an exception to the rule of going first to the person. A fourth exception is this. The offense is not personal. And there's a legitimate concern for the church leaders. An offense is not personal. And it is a legitimate concern for church leaders. Oftentimes, Matthew 18 is misapplied in these contexts. You become concerned about 
a family in the church and things with regard to a family that seem to seriously be going awry. And you're not sure who's aware of it, but you're aware of it. And the offense is not personal. You're not offended. It's not a matter that has been brought against you, but it's a concern of grave consequences. Are you to go to an elder and say, I'm concerned. I think you should know about such and such. Well, there are cases where it is very appropriate to do that. You recognize this is bigger than just me offering myself as a counselor. This is a big, this is a big issue. The elders need to be aware of it. If they knew of it, they would be acting. That's very appropriate. The person hears that, uh, the family hears that someone's gone to the elders, they might say, well, why didn't you follow Matthew 18 and come to us directly? Well, Matthew 18 is talking about personal offenses. And so there are occasions when there's right to go to spiritual leaders and say there's a matter that's bigger than, than my ability to help. You need to be aware of. May I make a footnote? Don't ever go to the elders unwilling to be known that you've gone to the elders. What are they going to say about how they acquired that information? They need to be able to say, we received a concern from someone that you know. And don't go to the elders unless you're willing to be unknown that you went. Well, I know I'm taking up a lot in these very points. The remainder of our time is when we spent on this fifth uh, answer to the question, when is it right to involve others? And that's the main concern of Matthew 18. When the offense is personal, but you have failed in private confrontation to be reconciled. That's what Jesus is zealous for back in Matthew 18. That's where he sees great benefit in particular coming uh, by those who become involved in an irreconcilable dispute. This is uh, what Jesus is speaking of. He talks about going and taking one or two others with you and going to that person that you've already confronted. Have you confronted them and there is no reconciliation? They stiff-armed you. They've denied what you've said, but your grievance continues. Well, then you should begin to involve others, one or two others should go with you. Why? What is, what is the value of that in that process? Well, I, I'm sure you've experienced something of it. Sometimes two people can become so entrenched in their perspectives on what has happened and so entrenched in their pride and their sense of their tally of who's confessed what and whose turn it is to go next and all that Sometimes people get so blinded and so entrenched in, in the issue that has divided them that they need an objective third party or third parties. So Jesus says, you take that step. And so I want to ask as a third question this morning, how then is it right to involve such people in a conflict between you and a brother? How is it right? How do we go about doing that? We're talking now about that whole realm of biblical teaching, Matthew 18, Philippians 4, 1 Corinthians 6, of mediation. Or the role of the conciliator. That's what we're talking about now. And I want all of you to listen with two ears, as it were. One ear 
thinking I might need such a person to become involved in my life in a dispute I have with a brother. Listen with that ear and then listen with the second ear. I might need to be such a person. I might need to take the role of such a mediator or conciliator. How do you do that? Well, you're in the dispute. You've approached the person to no effect. The first thing you should do is ask that person, can you and I agree on who we might like to become involved in helping us work this out? Who would it be? Let's at least agree on that. Let's at least agree on who will become involved. If it's a marriage, you agree who you're going to go to on the session. If it is a family dispute or, or some other business dispute, you might say, who in the congregation, whether wise man or woman, are we going to, to take into this and help us? It is far to be preferred that you and the one with whom you have a conflict agree on this. That seems to be what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians 6. He's, he's saying, couldn't you come to someone in the church and let them help you? And it seems that he he speaks of one wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers who seems to have in mind those two parties seeking the third party out together. That's far to be preferred. How much do you think of doing that? It happens frequently in marriage counseling. Two couples finally come to the conclusion, we've got to get some help. Do you think about it in, in other, perhaps less serious circumstances? You've not been able to become... Uh, resolved in a matter, and you say to yourself, well, I'm not sure I should take this to the elders. Well, maybe you shouldn't. Maybe you should ask the one with whom you're at odds, who among the members of the church could we ask to come and help us? And brothers and sisters, if, if I knew that that was happening with good effect, apart from my knowledge, could I speak that way? Oh, it would make me very happy. Make all the elders happy. To think that the members of the church were following this Matthew 18 process, even in smaller issues, in ways that were resolved long before even the elders became aware of it. What if they will not agree on such a person? Well, Matthew 18 gives you the right to go and, and choose such a person yourself. And if it appears to be something that is quite serious, a matter of great depth, perhaps that person ought to be an elder. Or a deacon. But even so, it may not be. It may be a, a wise brother or sister. And you go and you take up that person's help. And what kind of person should you go to? Well, you should go to someone who's in the best position to help. If you're the one who's choosing him, seek to choose that man or woman in such a way that you recognize the person with whom you have conflict, you know, respects that man. They would be receptive to something he said, even if they're not being willing with me to choose such a person. Someone who's objective, who would truly listen to both sides of the dispute and best able to influence you both. And now let me ask the question, what, what should you do if you're approached to have that role? What should you do? Aside from saying, of course, as I've already said, have you already done this privately, assuming that that's been done? Then you have the role, as daunting as it may be, you have the role that Paul envisions 
somebody taking up in the Philippian church. You guys all know this is happening. You know, sitting, they can't even sit together. I'm speculating. Somebody, you who are wise, restore such a one. Restore such ones. I want to encourage all of you as I come to a close. Let me encourage all of you. Do not think of yourself as incompetent. Take up such a role. Can you go and with all of your weaknesses, put your hand on both shoulders and say, brothers, this is what I see. You're talking past him. He's really saying this. You're not hearing that. And you're saying such and such. It's out of line. And that's why he's getting angry. And, and so on. Offer your counsel. And yes, if you become such a one, fulfilling such a role, be prepared, if need be, to bear witness to what you've seen and heard. That's what Jesus makes clear on the evidence of two or three witnesses that matters such as this be established. It may be that when the conflict cannot be resolved even at that level, you will be, need to be among those who can testify to the sin that needs the attention of the whole church. And that is what we will continue in consideration next week. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it does make us afraid to think of how we could serve that role being the mediator, conciliator. Father, in, in another way, yet again, we see you calling on us to be Christ-like. To be the one to go between and to accomplish reconciliation. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus' work to do that. Of course, we ourselves, being the ones entirely in the wrong, he being the go-between, the one sent by you to bring about this reconciliation, make us like this Christ conciliator. And, oh Lord, we pray that you will school us in the instincts that are most becoming of a Christian. Make, make us to see the sin of gossip and slander. Make us careful in our speaking, especially to those closest to us. Forgive us, O oh Lord, when we have passed around carelessly evil reports of others without ever having even spoken to them. Father, we pray you'd also forgive us afresh for the ways in which we have allowed the men of this world who look on at the church and make their judgments about whether we have something real or not, in part based on the words we say about things which happen between brothers. We ask that you would make us circumspect in this way as well. Move such dissension and make us quick to pursue this path, not just for our comfort, 
but for the glory of Christ, the head of the church, we pray in his name. Amen.